and said, quote, if for whatever reason any Marylander is unvaccinated, they should get vaccinated as soon as possible. Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga declared a new state of emergency in Tokyo today, citing rising infections in the capital and the rapid spread of the highly contagious Delta variant. Olympic organizers said today that they would bar spectators from most events at the games that are scheduled to open in just two weeks. Google was slapped with an antitrust lawsuit from dozens of states yesterday. That suit, led by New York Attorney General Letitia James, accuses the tech company of using exclusionary contracts to maintain a monopoly through its app store. The suit says Google controls 90% of the Android app market through its app store. This latest legal attack comes after A.G. James led another coalition of 38 attorneys general. Google also faces an antitrust case led by the Justice Department. Arizona's Democratic Secretary of State has called on the state's Republican Attorney General to investigate reports that Donald Trump and his associates tried to contact Maricopa County election supervisors in the weeks following last year's presidential election. Recent reporting from the Arizona Republican newspaper details two attempts by Trump to contact a county supervisor, along with efforts made by Trump allies Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and Arizona GOP chair Kelly Ward. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs said the reporting indicates, quote, potential violations of Arizona's election laws. Hobbs is running for governor of Arizona, while the state's Republican Attorney General, Mark Burnovich, is running for Senate. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 82 degrees and overcast. In New York City, 72 degrees with light rain. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening. The time now is two minutes past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces. Coming up, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining us here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look into the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, is taking a much-deserved break this week, but he'll be back with us soon. So, Jeff, if you're listening, and I hope you're out there doing something fun, not just hanging out listening to this show uh, and missing me, we miss you, and we hope you're enjoying a little break. Uh, so there's obviously a lot going on in the news this week, everything from what's going on in Haiti to the uh, continuing uh, battle to uh, to find out what happened with that condo collapse in Florida to right here in the city. Obviously, uh, a lot of radical weather going on. So I uh, hope you're being careful out there. But we're going to cut right to the big news that everybody's really been talking about. And we're going to uh, take a deeper dive on that. And that, of course, is the race to become the next mayor of New York. So as you know by now, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams is now the Democratic Party nominee to succeed Mayor Bill de Blasio. It's been a bumpy ride. It was a uh, contentious race. Lots going on there. And whoever the next mayor is, is going to have to face some significant problems in the city, from the crime rate to the economic damage caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And on top of that, of course, all the usual issues, gentrification, effectiveness of the public schools, the cost of living, uh, what we do with our open spaces, everything that goes along with being the greatest city in the world. And of course, 
Republican uh, Guardian Angels founder Curtis Lee is ready to go another round. Here's already out there swinging on Twitter. It's called Mayor Bill de Blasio, a quote, part-time mayor and quote, the dope from Park Slope, among some of his other choice remarks. Republicans, as we know, are vastly outnumbered in voter registration in New York City. But we should remember that the victories of people like Rudy Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg show it certainly can happen, and it has happened in recent memory. So while this victory in the Democratic primary means Borough President Adams gets to go on with his quest to try to run New York, it means that voters, once again, for whatever reason, but we'll get into that in just a minute, uh, have decided that a woman will not advance to the mayor's office. Uh, even Andrew Yang, who has been on this program, uh, he conceded the primary not that long after the polls closed. But even he himself has said that the city is overdue for a woman mayor. But that's not changing in the immediate future. Unless something wildly unforeseen happens, this being New York, we shouldn't rule anything out. But the question of why New York hasn't elected a female mayor yet remains open. And on top of everything else, of course, we had a very interesting and complicated experience with ranked choice voting. Uh, naturally, the city board of elections managed to get into a little hot water with uh, running that new system. Uh, having myself covered the board very seriously for many years, uh, recently even wrote uh, an ebook about voting machines and systems. Uh, I can't say this is a total surprise to me, but to talk about some of this uh, and break it down a little bit, I want to now bring in somebody who's been watching all of this very closely, Rachel Holiday Smith covers Manhattan for the city. She's covered local news in New York for more than a decade and is proud to have previously worked for WNYC, DNA Info, and New York One. So, Rachel, welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So uh, I want to jump right in. Uh, you guys over at the city recently did a story and the headline was rankled choice. Voting experts say the BOE rushed into releasing preliminary results. So obviously for people well, for people who may not even be familiar with uh, what happened there, tell us a little about that and what you found out as you were reporting that story. Sure. We basically spoke to experts who were familiar with the process of implementing ranked choice voting, and we found that um, originally the BOE itself and experts who are close to the BOE, you know, they were considering um, waiting a bit with the first time using ranked choice voting to actually wait until all of the votes were in, including early voting, day of voting, absentee voting to run the ranked choice just to make sure they have their, all their ducks in a row. Um, but, you know, some politicians pushed them to do it sooner, to, you know, issue this sort of delayed, um, you know, one week we get some results, the next week we get new results way of doing things. And that's when we saw the snafu that we saw where um, the Board of Elections included practice ballots and basically screwed up the tally and had to redo it. Um, and we also found, you know, we spoke to some experts on the West Coast where ranked choice voting has been used for many years. And they said, you know, the way the Board of Elections did this didn't didn't have to be done this way. They, they could have either waited until all the votes came in and then done the ranked choice tally or um, done it as they went, you know, as they got some votes. They would release some some uh, results and just keep plunking along day by day, which is how it's done in many California cities where ranked choice is used. And, you know, it's good for transparency. People sort of see the vote tally go up as an election administration agency has the votes and uh, and we get the votes in those dribs and drabs as we go along. Um, so. <laughs> Either way, no one's no one's super happy about what happened um, over the past few weeks with the Board of Elections. I'm I'm sure that is the case, and uh, I have I have definitely seen that movie before, and all of the sequels, and all of the prequels <laughs> to uh, you know, questions about how the Board of Elections uh, in in New York City uh, functions. Um, what I wanted to ask you about. Um, and if you're just joining us, we are talking to Rachel Holiday Smith of the city about uh, how the selection went uh, for mayor, uh, specifically uh, as it pertains to ranked choice voting. Um, you know, sometimes people look at this, and especially after some of the rhetoric 
I'll, I'll you know, say that in a general way, some of the rhetoric that we heard in the last election about elections being screwed up or votes not being counted correctly or votes, quote unquote, disappearing. I always want to take an opportunity, by the way, to add that there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud or tampering in the United States, in New York City. Uh, there just is not. But, you know, when you look at what happened with the BOE and you see that they are counting these test ballots or practice ballots and, you know, the numbers get screwed up, like how much do you think or do you hear that people are concerned that this might undermine people's confidence in ranked choice voting, but also in the, you know, the integrity of elections in general? What are you hearing about that? Sure. So it's interesting because I feel it's important to just say at the top that this error, though it happened within the new system rolling out of ranked choice voting, it actually has more to do with the administration of the election by the Board of Elections than with ranked choice voting inherently, right? Ranked choice Mm -hmm. voting does make things a bit more complicated to count, but there are plenty of jurisdictions that make this happen smoothly and have run elections this way for years. Um, I would say that I haven't heard a, a lot from everyday New Yorkers who are questioning ranked choice voting generally because of this. If if anybody's thinking about it or talking about it, it's more in the bucket of what's going on with the Board of Elections rather than let's try to um, turn back ranked choice voting that being said, you know, um, I think we would be having a very different conversation if Eric Adams didn't sort of clearly win the primary. Um, some of his supporters were making noise before the results were finished, saying, you know, this is not correct. The Board of Elections is screwing this up. Let's question this. Let's question these results. Um, that's died down now that he, you know, has clearly um, sealed up the primary, even though I should say the final votes are not Official, we still have to get those cured ballots into the the total mm. uh, mix. But um, you know, advocates who have per- been proponents of ranked choice voting, so take that with a grain of salt. They did a poll that showed that 75% of New Yorkers liked ranked choice uh, who voted in this past primary. So I think that you know people get it. People know how to fill up their ballots. It wasn't that complicated for people when they're actually going to fill in those little bubbles in the voting box. And I think, um, you know, the process of voting through ranked choice voting is much more simple and straightforward than (laughs) the results coming in from the board of elections. So I don't, I don't hear too much about people saying, Oh, well, let's, let's think about this again, or let's um, walk this back a bit. I don't, I don't hear that too much. Well, and, and that's good. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, look, and, and I'm not trying to be hypercritical or unfairly critical in the sense of you have a new system. Uh, there are going mm-hmm. to be bugs. You have a city this big and this complicated with this many people voting. I mean, mo- more people vote in New York City than, you know, in a lot of places. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I don't want to be unfair about that, but, you know, uh, I guess what I've been thinking about and wanted to ask you about is, you know, New Yorkers have had issues with the Board of Elections for years and people like you and I have been writing about it for years. And that has, you know, that goes further than just the the implementation of ranked choice voting or whether we should have open or closed primaries. You know, some of those things are are legislative matters or executive matters. And I get that. But, um, you know. Just wondering if you could give us a little bit of a read on, on you know, where the Board of Elections is right now. I mean, we've heard for years and, you know, we've all written about for years about nepotism and who works there or the qualifications of the people who work there and, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether they're, uh, in fact, um, able to, to carry out this incredibly important job. Just wondering, you know, what are you hearing lately about any possible changes to the Board of Elections, um, whether they're internal or legislative or or what have you? What do you hear? Yeah, well, I will say I wrote about this exact thing um, during the 2020 election because, um, as you said, for years, you know, especially advocates, good government groups have been pointing to the many bungled situations, the snafus, the... um, many problems that the Board of Elections have had. And, you know, at the most sort of um, 
comprehensive level, uh, advocates have advocated for the Board of Elections to be rehauled by a constitutional change, meaning that at the very basic level, they want to change the fact that the Board of Elections is a partisan organization. Um, it is actually, you know, appointed by the county political machines, and um, and there actually are no job requirements. There's no uh, prerequisite experience that you must have um, to to work at the Board of Elections. It is not a professionalized agency like it is in many other cities. You know, you don't have to have experience running elections to to work there. And the, the people who want to see it reformed would say, this is what it is, and this is the reason we have so many problems with the Board of Elections. Um, there are different excuses for, for any one issue that they've had, but it has been a pattern um, over and over of, of issues with with the board um, and the staff there. And there is yet again talk in Albany that a, a change would, a, a fundamental change would have to come from Albany, um, not any city agency. Um, and there's been talk now of, hey, let's get it together and, and figure out some reforms to the Board of Elections. Um, I <laughs> I guess I'm being a bit of a pessimist when I say I, I'll, I'll see it when I believe it, just because there have been so many um, people who have made noise about this for so many years. Um, but with so many eyes on this mayoral election, this mayoral primary, I should say, there may be momentum beyond just the same old voices to say, no, let's let's get it together in Albany and and make some changes. Whether it'll be a constitutional change, that would be a really long, years long, you know, effort. Um, but we could get some legislation that changes, you know, some of the way that the board functions or the way that they do things. But that remains to be seen. We, we don't have um, full-throated buy-in from uh, Carl Heasty, who would be a really key part of that yet. So we'll see. Right. And, and look, I understand that, um, you know, things have worked this way for a very long time that on the whole, you could argue on the whole, the Board of Elections has a very tough job and they do a very tough job reasonably well. That, you know, it's very complicated getting truckloads full of scanners uh, out to every precinct and setting them up and uh, marshalling the services of hundreds and hundreds of temporary poll workers, getting them up to speed uh, and so on. So, I mean, there's there's no question that it's it's harder to do this in New York City than in other places. And when you're talking about thousands of poll sites for every election, uh, you know, things get complicated. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to uh, dismiss that in any way. But, you know, it, I mean, it is interesting. Have you heard people talk about even the possibility of, of some sort of a civil service exam? I mean, certainly other agencies within city government and, you know, the Board of Elections is a unique agency because of what it does. But, you know, there are other functions within city government that have uh, – as you say, like uh, requirements for, uh, you know, past mm-hmm. experience or tests or, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of, of benchmark. I mean, have you have you heard people talk about sort of uh, concrete changes that that might help the board uh, work better in the future? Certainly. Yes. I mean, there are there are certainly, um, again, you know, good government folks who have advocated for exactly what you're describing. Um I don't know actually off the top if that type of change would have to just, you know, become a piece of legislation or it would have to be a more, um, you know, go down to the studs sort of change that would require more uh, momentum in Albany. But but certainly, I mean, the fact that to work at the Board of Elections, you don't need to take an exam or you don't need to prove your credentials or you you don't need to have a relevant resume, really. It's truly... um, a place that is made up of folks who have connections to um, the, the political uh, county parties. And that I think that is coming into sharper focus for everyday New Yorkers as they, they're paying attention to the results from this primary. Um, it is something that I think is, is getting into the consciousness more of everyday voters. And we'll see if that turns into any, any changes. Um, but 
I should say, you know, I've talked to experts around the country recently, but also, you know, months past about this. And there are, yes, New York is more complicated and it is harder to run elections here. But that's more of an argument that we should have, you know, the best election administration um, in the country. Right. It, it's a big job and it needs people who um, really know what they're doing. And I think that that's sort of at the core of of what advocates would want to see changed for the Board of Elections. And just have about a minute left here, although I wish I could keep you much longer because I love talking <laughs> about all this stuff. I know you wrote recently about uh, the Manhattan DA, uh, the uh, changes, potential changes there and some of the candidates, uh, some of the uh, reform uh, discussions you know, have concerned mm-hmm. people in that office, some of whom are uh, already looking elsewhere. What, what's going on mm-hmm. with the Manhattan DA's office right now? And, you know, especially considering that they are part of this big investigation into uh, the former president. Sure. I'll try to make this quick. The prosecutors who work there um, were quite concerned about some of the candidates who were up for that office, um, specifically because many of them were not prosecutors. The person who won, Alvin Bragg, is a former prosecutor, but, you know, they're still concerned that he'll be too liberal, too progressive and change the culture there a lot. And in regards to the Trump and um, the Trump investigation, no one I spoke to experts you know, who know about prosecutions think that that investigation will be affected by cultural changes in the office that may come with a new uh, DA just because it's so high profile and, you know, so intense. But, you know, some veteran prosecutors who have been there a long time and who work on the most complicated cases, I've heard, you know, may move on because they don't want to deal with um, some cultural changes uh, that may be coming down the line with a new a new DA. So, We'll see how all that pans out. Um, it's definitely going to be a change for the Manhattan DA's office. It's a, a, new, a new person who is quite different than his predecessors. Absolutely. So, Rachel Holiday-Smith, where can people find out more about you and your reporting? Well, definitely read thecity.nyc. We're a nonprofit um, news outlet that covers the five boroughs, and we're going to be covering all of this election stuff going forward. So the city.nyc, check us out. Thank you so much. Rachel Holiday-Smith, reporter for The City. Pleasure to have you here with us on WBAI. Thank you so much. You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. We were just talking to Rachel Holiday-Smith, covers Manhattan for the city. We're talking about the 2021 election for mayor, how New York did with ranked choice voting, and we're going to have two more great guests, actually, to talk about this, where we're really going to dig into uh, the candidates of the hour, or even more specifically, the uh, candidate who just won the Democratic primary, uh, Borough President, Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams. I uh, just want to take one moment to remind you that we are only able to keep having these important conversations about New York City, politics, culture, arts, music, uh, social justice, all these things. We can only do that with your help. That's why I want to remind you to go to WBAI.org and click on Ways to Donate. Please give as generously as you can. We are listener-supported commercial-free radio, uh, free speech radio. We've been around for more than 60 years, like to be around for another 60. You can also give a call, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Give as generously as you can. Uh, if you make a contribution of $25 or more, you become a member of the station, and you can choose from some great premiums that we have. You can check them all out on the website, or you can also opt to have your donation be tax-deductible, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, which means you can write off your donation, do some good, uh, get a tax break, wbai.org or 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. So a little bit earlier in the program, just a few moments ago, we had a great conversation with Rachel Holiday-Smith. She's a reporter for The City, and she encouraged you to check it out. I do, too. And now we're going to move on to talking to another person whose work I've known and read for a long time, and I'm sure you have, too. That's Robert A. George. He's a member of the Bloomberg Opinion Editorial Board and a columnist. Before that, he was a member of the editorial boards of the New York Post and my alma mater, The Daily News. And he's been writing about New York and national issues.
issues for more than two decades. So Rob was born in Trinidad. He lived in the UK before moving to the United States, graduated from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. He then worked for the Republican National Committee and following the 1994 midterm elections, worked for Speaker of the House of Representatives Newt Gingrich. May have seen him on TV public affairs shows. He's written on outlets uh, for outlets, including the Conservative National Review, all the way over to the Progressive Huffington Post. He's a co-founder of the Electoral Dysfunction Podcast. And if all this is not enough, he also does stand-up comedy and improv. So, Robert George, welcome to Driving Forces here on WBAI. Hey, Celeste. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, good to hear your voice. How you been? Uh, not not so bad, not so bad. Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been a while. Uh, uh, those many years when you and I would run into each other, I I with the post and you with the news, and and uh, and here we are now. <laughs> I know, unbelievable. So yeah, no. So the reason I thought to ask you to come on the program was that piece, and it was it was a fascinating piece that you did for uh, for Bloomberg Opinion uh, that you wrote about sort of you know the forces that helped Eric Adams get to where he is now as a Democratic nominee. You know some similarities there to what we saw happen in 2020 with the coalition that got behind Joe Biden. Um, just want to read a little excerpt of what you wrote for our listeners here and then maybe you can tell me a little bit more about about the similarities that you saw so you wrote quote black voters in the democratic party like white evangelicals in the republican party are the party's most reliable conservative base in the context of democratic party politics black voters are in the center Nationally, they proved to be a bulwark against the progressive forces of Bernie Sanders in both 2016 and 2020. And in New York this week, they did not buy into the progressive message of the runner-up in the mayor's race, former city official Maya Wiley. So that's interesting because I don't – well, first of all, I mean, do you think that people have mis, you know, misconceptions or misperceptions of, of African-American voters in this country and, and what they want and how they uh, – and how they uh, – Make their choices at the polls. Um, yeah, I, I think they do. Uh, and I, I want to say here, um, when I use the word when I use the word conservative, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm using a kind of a, a rather narrow definition of it. I mean, uh, African American voters are more supportive of a, a, more, a larger federal government and are can be sometimes suspicious of. Um, of, uh, of of uh, state power uh, uh, and so and so forth, which is completely the opposite of the conservatives um, within the um, within the Republican coalition. But um, uh, African Americans are conservative in the sense of being um, pragmatic and and practical and wary of. Um, and I may get some of your listeners upset when I say this. Wary of of uh, the, the the more progressive. Or um, uh, woke woke fads that kind of come along. Uh, for example, while um, many um, on the left were, uh, embraced uh, the the defund the police um, uh, language uh, in 2020 and into 2021, um, uh, African American voters uh, were a lot warier of it because uh, African Americans. Um, while they uh, are often uh, the subject of, um, of police brutality, um, they are also the ones most victimized um, when 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 crime go- when crime goes up. So you saw this play out in 2020 with uh, you know when G- when Jim Clyburn, um, the South Carolina congressman, endorsed uh, uh, Joe Biden over Bernie Sanders, even though Bernie Sanders had been had been trying to uh, woo. Um, African-American voters because he, he lost them by a huge margin in 2016 and he thought he had a, a better approach to them um, in 2020. Uh, as soon as when Clyburn endorsed Biden, uh, Biden then um, basically wrapped up the nomination by sweeping um, by, by sweeping the South. Flash forward to this year, uh, Eric Adams um, recognizing that uh, there was an increase in violence and an increase in shootings uh, in in New York, as there had been in some other large uh, cities uh, around the country. Uh, he he really pushed uh, on this idea that uh, that that safety um, and security has to come um, first before uh, you uh, try and embark on any kind of a progressive agenda. And he pushed back against Maya Wiley, 
um, who, uh, having been a uh, former member of the uh, of the CCRB, uh, well, actually, excuse me, she actually ran the CCRB. Uh, mm. She was uh, uh, her rhetoric was um, towards pushing back against um, um, the power of the police, and uh, Eric Adams, having been a former cop, cop himself, um, you know, resisted that, and he got votes um, in many of the predominantly um, black neighborhoods um, around the um, around the city, not just in not just in Brooklyn, but uh, Southeast Queens, the Bronx, and so forth. So some people have been critical of Eric Adams, who obviously, by the way, is a former police officer himself. Uh, you know, they're saying, well, he's going to bring back a kind of policing that is dangerous or or that is is discriminatory against people who are not white. Uh, now, look, somebody somebody elected a lot of somebody's elected Eric Adams. This was this was not uh, we didn't have to go 25 rounds of ranked choice voting to to figure out. But, you know, what do you say having watched this and, and having, you know, written about Eric Adams? What do you say to people you know, who say Eric Adams represents law and order, but the wrong kind. Well, I think I think one of the things that um, got a little bit overlooked in this uh, in this campaign is that uh, that Eric Adams, yes, is a former police officer, um, but he, in a sense, made his political bones um, by being an internal critic of the um, of the police. Uh, he was one of the founders of the um, 100 um, Blacks in Law Enforcement, uh, and he did that while he was uh, while he was a serving um, police officer. And that group uh, criticized um, uh, um, excessive uh, excessive force. They criticized um, cr- um, corruption um, that um, abused uh, abused communities of color. So, in a sense. Um, he's he's the ideal person to be able to walk that uh, to walk that line and not not walk that blue line, but basically um, walk that blue blue black brown line um, of uh, realizing that uh, uh, communities of color uh, need to feel safe and and sound, uh, not just from um, uh, over excessive uh, police. But they need to feel safe and sound in their own communities. Um, they don't want, you know, their, you know, the ten-year-old child, um, you know, being shot um, uh, because uh, over some dispute involving um, in, involving a car, or some or some other child um, getting shot because of um, because of crossfire um, between uh, between gangs. Um, these are real concerns in communities in, in communities of color, and um, and Eric Adams is is one of the few people um, to be able to um, speak um, both uh, to the the fear um, the, the fear of over policing, but also the fear of under policing as well. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and I'm speaking to Robert A. George. He is an editorial board member for Bloomberg Opinion and a columnist. And we're talking about Eric Adams and uh, the Democratic primary for mayor of New York in general. And I'm just wondering, Rob, what do you think about uh, the other candidates that fell short, uh, particularly Maya Wiley, Catherine Garcia? Do you think there's anything that they should have or could have done to make a more compelling argument for uh, choosing them over Eric Adams, or, or do you think it was it was just uh, a lost cause? Um, well, after all the ranked choice voting numbers were calculated, uh, uh, Eric Adams basically eked out a victory of about one point. Uh, it was about fifty point five to forty nine point five. I think was the was the final net number separating him and uh, Catherine Garcia. It should be kept in mind that uh, that, that, that Garcia's message, uh, while she ended up putting together a slightly different coalition than than, than, than Eric Adams, um, her message was also more on the uh, uh, on the pragmatic, um, practical, um, less progressive um, side as well. So it, it, one could make the argument that a a pretty clear message. Came through uh, when you when you add up Adams Adams's coalition with um, with with Garcia's that uh, that New York City, which of course is you know probably the, the biggest you know blue city in the um, in the in the in the country, um, voted 
yes, obviously they want to. They, they they're Democrats, and so they want a um, progressive government. Um, but they also want it, They also want security as well. Uh, I, I think if um, if uh, Catherine Garcia had been a slightly more seasoned um, um, politician and not just a, a lifelong um, public servant. Uh, she might have um, not just crafted her message slightly different, but I think she might have campaigned in in, in more of the outer borough neighborhoods that uh, ended up skewing um, pretty strongly to uh, to, uh, to Eric Adams. Um, Maya Wiley, if she had made, if she had perhaps. Um, <clears throat> Um, had more of a nuanced view in terms of um, policing and tried to um, uh, you know, grab some of those um, um, so, some of those pragmatic um, black voter black voters. You know, she might have also gotten you know, she, she might have also gotten in some um, uh, some more of those numbers as well. Um, but again, I, I, I think the, uh, in, in, the the Democrats seem to have um, had a clear message that they want to they want to balance between um, you know. Uh, 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 progressive dreams and um, and secure pragmatic reality. So uh, maybe not the most obvious question, but the one I most feel like asking: How much are you going to miss Bill De Blasio? <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> uh, uh, well, well, you know, uh, the Bill De Blasio is kind of an interesting figure. I think. Uh, the, the, the Bill de Blasio that sort of emerged uh, over the last, uh, you know, half a year or so, you know, sort of, you know, leaning into his, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, goofy dad aspect. I think that might have served him well if that if that figure had emerged a little bit uh, over the last over the last eight years. Uh, I mean, I, it's hard to say in terms of his basic political decisions, but he, he, he over the past eight years he came across as a little bit too much, uh, in my view, of, of a kind of an imperious um, um, know-it-all. And obviously, there were some, you know, you know, questions on, um, you know, uh, corruption and, and, and things and, and things like that. Uh, the the the, the the de Blasio that's emerged um, over the last, you know, six months or so seems to be having just a, like uh, having a little bit more fun as his uh, as his term is uh, winding down. And uh, it might have been better if uh, New York City had seen that a little bit more over the last few years. So, Robert George, where can people find out more about you and your work? I wish we had more time, but uh, I want people to check out check out your stuff. <laughs> Well, certainly uh, you can uh, you, you can certainly find me on Twitter. Um, that's uh, at that's at Rob George. Um, also on Twitter, you can go to uh, at B Opinion to uh, to find my columns and uh, the columns of uh, some of my um, uh, some of my esteemed colleagues. Robert George, uh, pleasure to have you here on Driving Forces on WBAI. I hope you'll join us again sometime. Definitely, Celeste. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So you're listening to 99.5 FM WBAI New York. That was Robert A. George. He's a member of the Bloomberg Editorial Board and a columnist. I'm your host, Celeste Katz-Marston. You're listening to Driving Forces. My wonderful co-host, Jeff Simmons, will be back with us soon after he enjoys a well-deserved break, or at least let's hope he's enjoying it. He is a man who has a tendency to work on vacation. I have really tried not to bug him too much over the last few days. But Jeff, if you are out there, and you might be, I'm thinking about you and I hope that you will go and do something fun <laughs> right after this show. So we're going to move right along. We have a very busy schedule today, trying to get in as many great conversations as we possibly can. So we have our final guest coming up right now, uh, Professor Christina Greer, someone I've quoted in many, many stories about politics, and I'm happy to be welcoming her to the show. She's an associate professor of political science and American studies at Fordham University, and she was the 2018 fellow for the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University's Silver School of Social Work. Professor Greer is an award-winning writer, a member of the boards of the Mark Twain House, the Tenement Museum, the Center for Community Change, and she serves on the advisory board at Tufts University. I'm sure you've seen her and heard her sharing her political insights on MSNBC, WNYC, and New York One. She's also the co-host of the New York-centered podcast FAQ NYC and of the Black Politics-centered podcast What's In It For Us. And among many other things, she also writes a column for the Amsterdam News. So, Professor Greer, welcome to WB. AI. Thanks so much for having me. 
It's a pleasure to hear your voice. I'm glad to have a chance to catch up. Always, uh, always value your opinions on, on all this, uh, political morass I'm trying to make sense of. Um, mm-hmm. so just, uh, jump right in. So you were quoted in a Times piece, uh, talking about Eric Adams because he's sort of our, our focal point or one of our focal points today. You know, saying that Eric Adams really spoke to communities that were hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, I'm just going to read here for a moment. You said at the time, quote, there are so many communities feeling left out and Adams as his authentic self seemed just as angry and hurt as inspired as those communities. Tell me a little bit more about, about what made you say that that why you see his his communication style in that way? Well, if you think about just even uh, his acceptance speech on June 22nd, that evening, it wasn't a full acceptance speech, but it felt like one. It was quite long. Uh, but he brought up COVID and he said, you know, remember when we didn't have information, when your community wasn't getting clear information, when no one was speaking your language, when you, you had no idea what was going on at a city hall, and for a lot of communities, you know, if you sort of look at maps that he won, you know, he went to communities that very few other candidates bothered to go to. And I think because Eric Adams has been a public servant and in political office for quite some time, and because he's literally a straight shooter, a lot of folks feel a certain authenticity with him. And when he says, you know, you should be angry, the way he comes across makes it seem as though He's as angry and hurt and upset as, as the communities he said he wanted to represent. And I think that really resonated with a lot of voters, um, where they feel as though he's right there in the trenches with them. And so not just his rhetoric on on the campaign trail and, and the evening of June 22nd, but because he's been in the collective political imagination for quite some time, I think a lot of voters felt that he would be a guy that, would get to City Hall and wouldn't necessarily change his stripes. And they're looking for someone like that. So a lot of the people who were not supportive of Eric Adams, who are critical, openly uh, critical of him. You know, one of the things they always go back to is, and of course, you know, as we've mentioned, as as uh, our listeners know, and you know, he was a former police officer. Um, but, you know, they're worried about the, I guess, the sort of the brand or the intensity of policing that they imagine will uh, will be uh, instituted in an Eric Adams administration. Do you think that... Um, the results at the polls uh, suggest that he did something to overcome those concerns, or did he just uh, make enough convincing arguments about other stuff to to get around people's worry that uh, you know he's going to bring back a type of policing in this city that a lot of people are either concerned about or frightened about? Right. I, I think it's more of the latter. I mean, you have to remember one: only roughly twenty five percent of the voting eligible population bothered to show up. Two, I think when we talk about policing, it's really multifaceted because you can look at black, white, immigrant, and other communities, and many of them can articulate a very nuanced understanding of, on the one hand, wanting more police and safe safe neighborhoods and safe streets, but also not wanting police to come in and start cracking skulls of their children or they themselves. Um, so it's a it's a type of policing that I think Eric Adams was able to present to voters of an insider-outsider status. I mean, he could say he's a police officer, which is a great concern to many uh, New York voters, but he can also say, but I fought the police tooth and nail and, and saw how they treated me when I was even one of their own. Like, I didn't hide behind the blue curtain or the blue wall. So his understanding of crime and public policy right now in a moment where there are spikes in crime from the petty all the way to the egregious, um, but not in every single neighborhood. So, I mean, some of this rise in crime is real. Some of it is, is just um, a feeling of it being real for a lot of people's communities. It's, it's real or perceived. And I think Eric Adams, though, speaks to people who have had to deal with high crime in their communities and articulates a way to help them see it's like police aren't all bad. I mean, keep in mind, many black families, many working class white families come from police officers. So to say abolish the police, many people are saying, well, I would obviously not do that. My father and my uncle, my brother and my mother, they're all mm-hmm. in the NYPD. So that's not what a lot of people are saying. They just want better police. They want better policing and they want more equitable policing. And Eric Adams, I think, presented the case where he said, well, yeah, that's what I want too. 
if you think about what he said on the evening of June 22nd, you know, he unequivocally said Black Lives Matter, which means a lot to a lot of New Yorkers. But then he also pivoted to a very common Republican, white, and black conservative, black moderate talking point, which is, and we also have to think about black-on-black crime. That is something that many black voters talk about quite a bit. So he's a very both-and type of politician when he's talking about these sort of very nuanced issues in a way that doesn't make him seem hypocritical. It's just he, he teases out the complex issue in a very straightforward way, which mirrors many of the conversations that people have around their kitchen table. And you have interviewed Eric Adams yourself, you know, just as opposed to uh, meeting him at an event or watching him be on programs. I mean, you've sat down with him for your program, for your podcast, FAQ NYC. Uh, you know, what was your take when you had an extended conversation? I, I did hear some of it. You know, you made some you asked him some pretty detailed questions. Do you feel like he's ready to be mayor and to deliver on the kinds of things that he talked about during the campaign? Or do you, do you concern about any sort of gaps between his his rhetoric and his record when it comes to actually running things? Well, the good thing for New Yorkers is that Eric Adams ostensibly has kind of from June to November to hone in on some of the policies and tease them out and flesh them out, some of the promises that he's made before he faces off with Curtis Lewa. And then, I mean, it, it's looking very good for Eric Adams for January 1st being sworn in as 110th mayor. My And, and when Harry Siegel and I interviewed Eric Adams for FAQ NYC, which is our podcast, it was right before he uh, declared uh, himself as, as a candidate, or shortly beforehand. Uh, and my biggest concern was this. After the horrible events in Pittsburgh at the, at the synagogue and that tragedy, uh, Eric Adams had made a statement, something to the effect that we should be carrying weapons in our places of worship, something that I disagreed with strongly, and I asked him about it. Um, he has later said that he was joking in his response, but he, he doubled down and said that He does believe that people should carry weapons in uh, their places of worship. And as mayor, he would not need a police detail. He would carry his own gun and the city would be so safe he wouldn't need one. Now, that was also something he said before he was a declared candidate for the mayoralty. It was also before he won the Democratic primary. I don't know if he will stick to that philosophy of carrying his own gun and not needing a police detail. Um, But I do think when it comes to... Crime, I do want to know a little bit more about the, and when I say nuance, I mean that specifically, you know, what about stop and frisk? Will you keep? Will you alter things? I think, you know, before I make any judgment about Eric Adams, I just want to know who his police commissioner will be. That will tell me a lot because, you know, when Bill de Blasio campaigned on a very progressive message and then appointed Bill Bratton as his police commissioner, to me that was antithetical of everything that he had essentially said and promised on the campaign trail. So had I known he was going to appoint Bill Bratton, he never never would have gotten my vote and probably wouldn't have gotten the votes of many other people. So I'm curious to see who Eric Adams wants as the police commissioner, what type of structure he wants in the NYPD. I mean, the good thing is he does know a lot about one of the largest paramilitary organizations in the United States, the good and the bad. So I'm, I'm leaning towards being optimistic about having real conversations about race, class, and policing and neighborhoods in a way that we just have never had before as a city. Now, those are going to be hard conversations. I think a lot of political elites aren't going to like some of those conversations. Um, I think Eric Adams is going to say things in a way that isn't going to sort of, you know, use a velvet glove and make sure that, you know, you're nice and settled in before he says something. He's going to say it and then probably do it. Um, But I'm going to reserve judgment until I know a little bit more about who he wants to surround himself with before – we, we make any sort of final declarations about who he's going to be as a policing mayor. This is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and I'm discussing the primary, Democratic primary for mayor and the winner of that primary, Eric Adams, with Professor Christina Greer of Fordham University. And Professor Greer, I actually just want to jump over to uh, people besides Eric Adams. This is something I definitely wanted to ask you about. So what do you think this outcome says about how ready New York is for uh, a woman mayor? Because, uh, you know, covering elections in New York for a long time, politics for a long time, and everyone's always talking about it and everyone, I mean, even 
people that are running say that it's it's uh, way past due for New York to have a female mayor. What what is it going to take? Is it was it the people running? Was it the times? What 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 happened there? No, I think you know we had three very qualified female candidates. We also had a very crowded field. Um, you know, with matching funds, obviously in New York, switching to eight to one matching funds as opposed to six to one definitely helped the candidates. I think, you know, there was some overlap between supporters of Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia. So, you know, I don't want to do Monday morning quarterbacking, but, you know, if Maya or Catherine were not in the race, we might see a different uh, turnout because we know that a lot of those first and second place voters overlapped between the Garcia and Wiley camps. But, uh, you know, I think also, let's not forget, Eric Adams has been a public servant and in political office for over two decades, mm-hmm. whereas Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia, these are their their first election. So I don't think it's a mandate that New York City doesn't want or isn't ready for a female candidate. I think we can look at the Garcia and Wiley campaigns and see how well they did, especially for first-time candidates, to say, well, you know what, maybe next time they'll know a little bit more. And, and you know, it's very difficult to campaign, especially in a city as large as New York, and especially during a global pandemic, which we are still in the midst of. Um, and so to see how well they did with those constraints, Never having run a campaign before, I think, as I, you know, I tell people I'm a plant, I lean towards the light. I think that that actually says a lot more about the progress we have made and how close we are to getting uh, a female candidate across the finish line um, in the future. And then just I know we have just a, a minute or two left, but I did want to ask you about this. And I know you've, you've spoken about this. You know, people are looking at this contest and they're saying, well, this tells us something much bigger about moderates versus progressives in the Democratic Party. And, you know, we've seen a lot of stories about, oh, well, you know, AOC's power shaken, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, what do you seriously, what do you think this says about um, whether Democrats are, are feeling more inclined towards progressive candidate or moderate candidate at this time, given the challenges the city faces right now? Do you think it was about ideology? Or do you think it was about the specific people running? Can we can I draw anything yeah, from I, progressive versus yeah, moderate? Or is that is that just is New York just too weird I, and is a total I'm outlier? I don't think that that's a mandate. I mean, we can look at some of the city council races and progressive candidates who who did well. We can look at the progressive candidates on the statewide races from just a few years ago who who did well and are continuing to do well. I think, you know, when you look at the map, um, Eric Adams went to the outer boroughs. I mean, first of all, we have an embarrassingly low turnout, first first stop in our municipal elections. And so you have someone like Wiley, Garcia, Stringer, Donovan, and McGuire essentially fighting over the same vote in, you know, Manhattan below 110th Street and gentrified Brooklyn. So that left a lot of the city for Eric Adams, which he knows, by the way. Like, he's not new to this. So he's been talking to these communities and was able to to convince them uh, to make him their, their number one vote. And also, we have to remember, this is in a brand-new system, ranked choice voting, where people were trying to strategize what's the best way they could capitalize uh, for their particular candidates. So I don't I don't think that it's a mandate that we're you know a moderate city. I definitely think that we're we're much more centrist than say the news the national news outlets would would lead people to believe. Um, but I I think that this crop of candidates just showed us just how diverse the big D Democratic Party really is in New York City. But also a lot of voters went to the polls on a case by case basis. So who they voted for for city council or even controller or public advocate maybe didn't um, mirror who they voted for for mayor ideologically. I think people went with uh, sort of individual feelings, whether or not they met a candidate or felt that that candidate's vision was best for them in that particular office. But I'm not ready to make a sweeping statement that, you know, centrist, moderate candidates are the only ones who could win. We do know uh, historically, you know, the political science literature does tell us when there are spikes in crime, uh, voters of all stripes tend to become a teeny bit more conservative just because they're a little more concerned about um, their wealth and well-being. But uh, I don't think that that's a, a larger mandate that we're, we've thrown progressive politics out the window by any stretch. And Professor Christina Greer, where can people find out more about you and your work and your research? Uh, well, if they want to hear me chatting every week with Harry Siegel, they can tune into FAQ NYC, which is our podcast. And I've got a book coming out probably in a few months and still in editing phases on Barbara Jordan, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Stacey Abrams about black women in politics. So wow. they can stay tuned. And I'm on Twitter. 
at dr <laughs> underscore cm Greer. Excellent, excellent. We'll have a look at. We'll have to have you back to talk about the book when it's out. Thank you. Okay, wonderful, Professor Christina Greer. Thanks so much for joining us uh, here on Driving Forces today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Celeste. So that about does it for today's program. Just one more reminder that your contribution to help keep free speech radio alive here on WBAI is tax deductible. 212-209-2950 is the number to call. 212-209-2950. Or just go to WBAI.org and click Ways to Donate. I want to thank again our great guests today, Rachel Holiday-Smith, Robert A. George, and Christina Greer. Special thanks, as always, to our engineer, Reggie, saving the day every day. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it on WBAI.org. And you, subs- you can subscribe to Driving Forces on Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back next week. Stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. See you on the radio. at 7 p.m. at McCarran Park, there is a gathering in support of Black Lives and the Black Lives Matter movement. This is a 100% community-led nightly gathering. For more information, go to McCarran Gathering on Instagram. That's M-C-C-A-R-E-N Gathering on Instagram. The Jamaica Bay Rockaway Parks Conservancy, American Literal Society, and Partners are hosting the fourth annual Jamaica Bay Festival. This In Your Neighborhood program will be on City of Water Day, Saturday, July 10th, from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Come down to learn about Jamaica Bay and what it takes to preserve this local habitat. For more information, visit jbrpc.org. That's jbrpc.org. Also on Saturday, June 10th, is the weekly Bronx Night Market. The Bronx Night Market is the largest ever series in Uptown, the Bronx, and Westchester County. It attracts thousands every Saturday at Fordham Plaza. The series, celebrating culture and cuisine, represents the city's diverse offerings and supports up-and-coming food concepts, all the while encouraging visitors from the greater New York area and beyond to explore the Bronx. For more information and to snag your free tickets, visit thebronxnightmarket.com. Also on Saturday, you can attend Just Think Brooklyn. In a relaxed park setting, join an open-minded group and indulge in a conversation menu of thought-provoking questions tying into current times at 1 p.m. If you're interested in thoughtful conversations, this meetup at McCarran Park is for you. Visit Just Think Brooklyn on Instagram for more information. That's Just Think BK on Instagram. The Greenpoint Terminal Flea Market is open every Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. This Saturday will include outdoor yoga, live music, and a car show. The flea market showcases over 100 vendors from vintage and antiques to local art and design, fresh fashion, and a variety of international food. This is a space for small businesses and craft makers to grow and for the community to get together and have fun. For more information, visit GreenpointTerminalMarket.com. That's GreenpointTerminalMarket.com. That's not the only place to support local businesses this weekend. Saturday will also be the For the Love of Black Businesses pop-up shop. This pop-up shop will include nine vendors selling food, drinks, jewelry, and more. There will also be live music, and the entry is free. Come support small local black-owned businesses this weekend starting at 1 p.m. at 2550 Pitkin Avenue, Brooklyn. For more information, search for For the Love of Black pop-up shop on eventbrite.com. That's For the Love of Black Pop-Up Shop on Eventbrite. On Sunday, July 11th, join the Urban Park Rangers for the Eastchester Bay Cleanup. This event is meant to clean up the bay while learning about local ecology. The cost to attend is free. Come down to the Pelham Bay and Nature Center from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Sunday, July 11th. Visit NewYorkCityGovParks.org for more information. If you have events for our community board, email us at radio at WBAI.org. I'm Angela Palumbo for the WBAI Community Bulletin Board. 
The nomination phase of WBAI's 2021 Local Station Board elections is underway. And if you are a WBAI member, you can nominate candidates or become a candidate yourself. Go online at elections.pacifica.org to register either as a candidate or to nominate candidates. As a nominator, once approved, you will be able to log in and check the boxes next to the candidates you'd like to see on your local station board. Each potential candidate will need at least 15 nominations in order to be on the ballot this October. Members without Internet access can leave a voicemail with their name, address, phone number, and the names of any candidates you'd like to nominate at 510-993-0320. For more information, visit elections.pacifica.org. The previous program was Driving Forces. It's heard 